Enflame Myself with Prayer, Part 2 I shall begin Part 2 by reading the final paragraph of Part 1, which states that, on the other hand, to know that we may commune unhindered with the essence of the created universe, to know that essence as God, who is ever attentive and sympathetic to our concerns, to know that we will always be heard in absolute confidentiality, to know that there is nothing that stands between us and that supreme Godhead other than our own inhibitions, is to know that we are anchored securely and meaningfully in the cosmos. In this knowledge, we can live our lives in a context that has purpose and meaning both within and beyond the constraints of the mundane world, and furthermore, live in harmony with every other creature that inhabits creation. But such communication requires of us that we not only speak well, but that we also listen well, and that we listen attentively with an inward ear. Otherwise, there is little possibility of the soul hearing the voice of the divine, because the spiritual world does not announce its presence noisily, as the babbling of baboons, but emerges silently, like the falling of snow. And if we would hear the voice of the Spirit, then we must disconnect, if only for a moment, from the internal chatter of the mind, and listen attentively in the silence that ensues. In understanding this, we may recognize, as did St. Paul, that man consists of two parts. The first part, a terrestrial mortal being, and the second part, a celestial immortal being. The first, a creature of earth, and the second, a creature of spirit. St. Paul alludes here to a great mystery concerning the means whereby the man of dust is transformed into the heavenly man. It is a mystery that applies not only to our earthly life, but also to our spiritual life, and prayer is essential to both. Thus St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.39-49, and I quote, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption, it is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterwards the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust, and the second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. End quote. In part one, we looked at prayer as it applies to our earthly life. However, when viewed in another light, those with eyes to see will know that prayer embodies both an art and a science. As an art, it is the secret language of the soul. 
a language which synthesizes thought, image, and emotion in a manner best described as an alchemical process, enabling the soul to transcend the limitations of mundane existence. As a science, it defines the formula and techniques of transcending the mundane world, which is the world of the senses, and all that such implies. Our perception of the mundane world is defined by the experiences we have by the senses, which shape both what we feel and what we think. It is the life of the man of dust alluded to by St. Paul. The same insight is implied in the writings that were compiled by the followers of Orpheus, who understood that human nature consists of two distinct parts, a mortal physical nature derived from the Titans and an immortal spiritual nature derived from Dionysius. Legend has it that the Titans, encouraged by the goddess Hera, slew the infant god Dionysus and consumed him, for which terrible deed Zeus slew them with his thunderbolt. From their remains man was created, part immortal and part mortal. From this premise they taught that the body was the tomb or prison of the soul, and that salvation was only to be attained by overcoming the mundane world, of which the body is a part. Consequently, the soul could only free itself by sublimating the passionate titanic nature and regenerating the divine Dionysian nature that lies within. And prayer was an essential part of that process. This is expressed clearly in the following Orphic hymns and prayers, which are obviously concerned with the life of the soul beyond the mundane world and the influence of the physical body, St. Paul's man of dust. The following is from Jane Harrison's Prologamina, printed in 1963, on page 479. I quote, Lord of Europa's Tyrian line, Zeus-born, who holdest at thy feet the hundred citadels of Crete, I seek to thee from that dim shrine, roofed by the quick and carven beam, by shallop steel and wild bull's blood, in flawless joints of cypress wood, made steadfast. There is one pure stream my days have run. I, thy servant, initiate by day in Jove, where midnight Zagreus roves, I rove. I have endured his thunder cry, fulfilled his red and bleeding feasts, held the great mother's mountain flame. I am set free and named by name a Bacchus of the mailed priests. Robed in pure white, I have borne me clean from man's vile birth, and coffined clay, and exiled from my lips away, touch of all meat where life had been. End quote. The following is also taken from Harrison's Prolegomena, page 573, and I quote, Thou shalt find on the left of the house of Aedes a wellspring, and by the side thereof standing a white cypress. To this wellspring approach not near, but thou shalt find another by the lake of memory, cold water flowing forth, and there are guardians before it. Say, I am a child of earth and of starry heaven, but my race is of heaven alone. This ye know yourselves, but lo, I am parched with thirst, and I perish. Give me quickly the cold water flowing forth from the lake of memory, and of themselves they will give thee to drink from the holy wellspring, and thereafter among the other heroes thou shalt have lordship. End quote. A comparable understanding is to be found in ancient Egypt. 
Indeed, the pharaoh was known as the Lord of the Two Lands, of Lower and Upper Egypt, a title that has also been described as a metaphor concerning the terrestrial and the celestial world. Indeed, the larger part of the religious life of pharaonic Egypt was concerned with the relationship between them, and it is a matter of fact that no other civilization has demonstrated so much interest in the comings and goings of the soul between them. In ancient Egypt, it was understood that when a body died, a spiritual body could be raised up from it through the power of prayer. This art was known only to the sacerdotal orders, whose rites and the teachings concerning this process were maintained in the strictest secrecy. Few people were privy to their mysteries, although it is on record that several non-Egyptians were given access to them, both Moses and Orpheus coming to mind. The following is a prayer used in the making of a sahu, or spiritual body. It was believed that if the prescribed prayers were said and the appropriate ceremonies were properly performed over the dead body by duly appointed priests, it acquired the power of developing from out of itself an immaterial body called a sahu, which was able to ascend to heaven and dwell with the gods therein. Wallace Budge translates a papyrus concerning the making of a sahu. And I quote, Homage to thee, O thou who dwellest in the holy mountain of Amentet. Osiris, the royal scribe, Nekutu Amen, victorious, knoweth thee, and he knoweth thy name. Deliver thou him from the worms which are in rest thou, which live upon the bodies of men and women, and which feed upon their blood. For Osiris, the favoured one of the god of his city, the royal scribe, Nekutu Amen, victorious, knoweth you, and he knoweth your names. Let this be the first bidding of Osiris, Nebegetja, who keepeth hidden his body. May he give air and escape from the terrible one who dwelleth in the bight of the stream of Amentet. May he decree the action of he that is rising up. Let him pass on to him whose throne is within the darkness, who giveth glory in Resta. O Lord of Light, come thou and swallow up the worms which are in Amentet. The great God, who dwelleth in Tatu, and who is unseen, heareth his prayers. But those who are in affliction fear him, as he cometh forth with the sentence of the divine block. I, Osiris, the royal scribe, Nekutu Amen, have come bearing the decree of Nebegetcha, and Horus hath taken possession of his throne for him. His father, the lord of those who are in the boat of Father Horus, have ascribed praise to him. He cometh with tidings, and may he see Anu, their chief, standeth upon the earth before him, and the scribes magnify him at the door of their assemblies, and they bind his swathings in Anu. He hath led captive heaven, and he hath seized the earth in his grasp. Neither the heavens nor the earth can be taken away from him, for behold, he is Ra, the firstborn of the gods. End quote. From Wallace Budge's Book of the Dead, page 47. Similarly, in ancient Greece, the Eleusinian mysteries, ancient before Pythagoras was born, were concerned with the philosophical death and subsequent regeneration of the soul as a spiritual or divine being. The sacred rites of Eleusis were so honoured and respected throughout the ancient world 
that no one ever broke the code of silence imposed upon those initiated into their mystery, although fortunately they were alluded to in a veiled way by several writers, including Aristophanes, Plato and Plotinus. The following hymn concerning these mysteries is attributed to Orpheus, the acclaimed reformer of the Lucilian mysteries, and is given in the translation of Thomas Taylor. And I quote, I shall utter to whom it is lawful, but let the door be closed nevertheless against all the profane. But do thou hear, O Musaeus, for I will declare what is true. He is the one self-proceeding, and from him all things proceed, and in them he himself exerts his activity. No mortal beholds him, but he beholds all. There is one royal body in which all things are enwombed, fire and water, earth, ether, night and day, and counsel, the first producer and delightful love, for all these are contained in the great body of Zeus. Zeus the mighty thunderer is first, Zeus is the last, Zeus is the head, Zeus is the middle of all things. From Zeus all things are produced. He is male, he is female. Zeus is the depth of the earth, the height of the starry heavens. He is the breadth of all things, the force of untamed fire, the bottom of the sea, sun, moon and stars, origin of all, king of all, one power, one God, one great ruler. End quote. From Thomas Taylor's The Lucinian and Bacchic Mysteries. This hymn speaks plainly now of what was once a great mystery revealed only in metaphor and allegorical tales. Perhaps this was for the best. Perhaps at first it was the only way the integrity of the liturgy and the religious calendar could be sustained in a world where literacy was generally irrelevant. After all, the world had survived for millennia without the need for a literate society, relying instead on historians, priests and poets who maintained reasonably accurate records in the form of stories and poetry. However, times change and with the introduction of an effective alphabet during the 6th or 7th centuries BC onwards, more and more people learned the art of reading and writing. The following instructions from the Enneads of Plotinus describes a means by which initiates could elevate their consciousness to experience something of the divine. In this instruction, Plotinus alludes to a spiritual teaching that was probably central to the mystery schools, not only of Aloysius, but of all the schools of that era. And I quote, On the vision of God, Let us then make a mental picture of our universe. Each member shall remain what it is, distinctly apart, yet all is to form as far as possible, a complete unity, so that whatever comes into view shall show as if it were the surface of the orb over all, bringing immediately the vision of the one plane, of the sun, and of all the stars with the earth and the sea, and all living things as if exhibited upon a transparent globe. Bring this vision actually before your sight, so that there shall be in your mind the gleaming representation of a sphere. Keep this sphere before you, and from it imagine another, a sphere stripped of all magnitude and of spatial differences. Cast out your inborn sense of matter, taking care not merely to attenuate it. Call on God, maker of the sphere, whose image you now hold, and pray to him to enter. 
and may he come bringing his own universe with all the gods that dwelleth in it, he who is the one God, and all the gods where each is all, blending into a unity, distinct in powers, but all one God in virtue of that one divine power of many facets. More truly, this is the one God who is all the gods. End quote. From Plotinus, the Six Enneads, by Stephen McKenna, page 245. Plotinus was born in Lycopolis, in Egypt, at the beginning of the 3rd century AD. For more than ten years he studied philosophy at Alexandria, under the guidance of his master, Ammonius Saccas, eventually moving to Rome, where he remained for the rest of his life. He published nothing, and as far as we know, wrote only the various essays and lecture notes that constitute the substance of the Enneads. After his death, his notes were edited and published by his student, Porphyry. The essence of his teaching proposes three principal modes of being, to which he applied the term hypostasis. The first he defined as the One, which is the prime source and principle of all being, the very ground of existence. The second is the divine nous, or mind, in which exists the archetypal ideas and prototypes of all creation. The third, proceeding from the divine nous, is the world soul, below which lies the realm of nature, which constitutes the outer life of the world soul. And last of all, there is undifferentiated matter, the last consequence of the outpouring of the one. It forms the lowest stage of the universe and is thus understood to be the antithesis of the one. Plotinus taught that the world soul consists of two parts. First, a higher celestial part, through which it contemplates the divine nous, and second, a lower terrestrial part, through which it generates the material cosmos according to the archetypal model contained within the divine nous. Human souls proceed from the world soul, and like the world soul, may also be subdivided into two or more parts. For a human being, he taught, is a microcosm, wherein the principles of the hypostasis are reflected as spirit, soul and body. Below the sphere of the soul lies a material world, in which the soul's conjunction with matter and a material body takes place, and which Plotinus taught was a fall or descent from a higher state of being. It is from this fall or descent that the soul seeks redemption, and to which Plotinus devotes much of his attention. Plotinus's model of the cosmos is significant, in that he describes in literal terms what previously had been taught through metaphor and allegory, and only experienced by the initiate during the celebration of the mysteries. At the centre of this celebration, with all of its pomp, ceremonial and drama, the consciousness of the initiate would have been elevated through the use of evocative prayer to experience the world soul in the form of Demeter, and then, after a different fashion, to experience the divine nous in the form of Dionysus. Plotinus believed that it was possible for individual souls, through the practice of contemplation, to rise to the level of the divine nous, and there, in spiritual union, be absorbed back into the One. Plotinus describes what are effectively the most important objectives of the mystery schools, which were the direct experience of and union with divinity. The first part, often thought of as the lesser mysteries, was concerned with the separation of the soul from the carnal nature 
of the physical body. The second part, often described in one way or another as the greater mysteries, was essentially concerned with the elevation of the soul beyond the phrenic nature of the psychic world, into the presence of divinity. Similar processes may be discovered in the mysteries of many cultures, but particularly in the Western line that flowed out of ancient Egypt. In places, the Western line or tradition interacted with other traditions. One such interaction was with the cult of Mithras, a cult that originally emerged out of the Persian religion of Zoroastrianism. However, in Rome, the two merged, and the Mithraic mysteries became a fundamental part of Roman life. Little evidence remains of the Mithraic cult and its mysteries, other than the sculptures and inscriptions preserved in the ruins of its temples. Yet Mithraism was once the religion of the Roman army, with centres throughout the empire. Indeed, it can be argued that if Constantine had failed in his objectives, Mithraism and not Christianity would most probably have become the religion of the empire. However, Christianity triumphed, and in the centuries succeeding Constantine, Mithraism faded into obscurity, albeit with some assistance from the Christian authorities. The following prayer is taken from what is believed to be a rare surviving ritual from the Mithraic liturgy. It is taken from Mead's Echoes from the Gnosis, volume 6, page 18 and 21, and contains elements found in Egyptian, Judaic and Greek prayers and hymns that suggest a comparable understanding of the inherent spirituality of man. And I quote, O primal origin of my origination, thou primal substance of my substance, first breath of breath, the breath that is in me, first fire, God given from the blending of the blendings in me, first fire of fire in me, first water of my water, the water in me, primal earth essence of the earthy essence in me, thou perfect body of me, fashioned by an honoured arm and incorruptible right hand in world that's lightless, yet radiant with light, in world that's soulless, yet filled full of soul. If verily it may seem good to you, translate me, now held by my lower nature, unto the generation that is free from death, in order that, beyond the insistent need that presses on me, I may have vision of the deathless source, by virtue of the deathless spirit, by virtue of the deathless water, by virtue of the deathless solid, and by virtue of the deathless air, in order that I may become reborn in mind, in order that I may become initiate, that the holy breath may breathe in me, in order that I may admire the holy fire, that I may see the deep and the new dawn, the water that doth cause the soul to thrill, and the life-bestowing ether which surrounds all things may give me hearing. For I am to behold today with deathless eyes, I, mortal born of mortal womb, made better by the might of the mighty power, yea, by the incorruptible right hand. I am to see today by virtue of the deathless spirit, the deathless aeon, the master of the diadems of fire. I, with pure purities now purified, the human soul power of me subsisting for a little while in purity, which power I shall again receive transmitted to me beyond the insistent bitterness that presses on me. Necessity, whose debts can never go unpaid, according to the ordinance of God, 
that naught can ever change, for that is beyond my reach, that born beneath the sway of death, I should unaided soar into the height together with the golden sparklings of the brilliancy that knows no death. Stay still, O nature, doomed to perish, nature of men subject to death, and straightway let me pass beyond the need implacable that presses on me, for that I am his son, I breathe, I am. End quote. Here we must end part two of Inflame Thyself with Prayer. Thank you.